Hi, I'm Justin Hayat, and this is 36. The Lamed Vav Siddiquim is a tale built on the idea that out there in the universe, somewhere in the far corners of the world, there are 36 anonymous, really good people who hide in the shadows but step forward when we need them most. In 2020, somehow, I managed to get on a plane to Israel to find out more about these secret souls and hear their stories. This is my journey to find wonder and goodness in our once magical world. He hates being called a hero. I was warned this by two friends of his prior to meeting him. Okay, he's just a normal person. But let's be real, he's not. There's nothing normal about a man who electrified the ethos of millions of Jews and was the cause of freedom for a generation. A single man who represents a fight that became a movement. The movement for Soviet Jewry. There's an incredible density in meeting such a man. And there's pressure. How could there not be? What wisdom would he offer? In 50 years, what would I tell my children, my grandchildren, or even myself about this meeting? Did it shape me? What did I learn? What was he like? We waited outside his office for our hour-long meeting to begin. We hear Russian and then we hear English in his dense Russian accent. Okay, I'm ready. Let's sit up. I told myself, remember, he's just a person. We walked in and began our conversation with Natan Sharansky. When was the moment in your life when you realized that you were an activist? That you were not going to be just a, a normal human being at the simple life, standing in line, that you would have to be different? Uh, look, uh, I was a very ambitious young man from the age of five. That was the age when my mother taught me chess. And she said to me that in chess, your thought can fly. And really living from the age of five, knowing that I'm living in the society where you are not supposed to say what you think. In fact, it happened after Stalin died, and my father explains to me, I'm five years old. It's very good for Jews. Thanks God he died, but don't say it to anybody. And I go to kindergarten, and I cry with all the children, and I sing songs about son of all the people, Stalin, and I know that all it's lie, and I have no idea how many of children are really crying and how many of them are crying like me. That like is North Korea. Uh, that's typical. Well, like many years after North Korea. So that's typical life of the Soviet Union, life of lies. And then I learn chess and I find out that here is the world where your thought is not punished, your free thought. When I understood I'm a very ambitious person, I decided that I have to win everybody who's taller than me. And because everybody was taller than me, so I, I, it was quite challenging, and that became a big hobby of my life, and I loved to win. Well, many years later, it became a blessing for me, this playing chess in your head uh, in prison. Uh, but then it was simply a desire to win intellectually and uh, to, to overcome all the shortcomings of your age, of your uh, hate, or whatever. Uh, now... I grew having no 
no identity and no freedom in my life. There was nothing Jewish, except from the name Jew in the idea of your parents, there was nothing Jewish. No language, no tradition, no bar mitzvah, no brit milah, nothing. But uh, there was one Jewish thing, anti-Semitism, and a lot of anti-Semitism. So no freedom and no identity. And the only desire is, not desire, the parents explain you that you must be the best in your school, in physics or mathematics or in chess or, or in music or whatever, because that is the way how we survive in spite of anti-Semitism. So this drive for excellence, it was something very Jewish, which was in our blood because that was the main message for every Jew, that in spite of all this anti-Semitism restrictions, uh, you must be the best in your profession. And I worked very hard, spent a few years of my life to be accepted to the best physics mathematical institute, which usually is compared with MIT, America, where it was extremely difficult for the Jew to get. And so I thought that that's, that's it. Now I'm in this castle of science, I'm protected. And then came 1967, and Israel entered our life inevitable, simply everybody was looking and saying, it's amazing how you guys did it. Soviet Union spent so much efforts that Israel will be defeated by Egypt and Syria. And in a few days, it was all the opposite, such a humiliation for Soviet Union. And people, friends and enemies asked how you guys did that was the moment. As if you knew. As if they... And, and as if, they don't ask, well, maybe you Jews know something. <laughs> No, they say, you, so as if I am one of these soldiers. So in the beginning, you are almost frightened that what? They think I am not loyal. But then you understand whether you want or not, with these people, you are connected. So you'll better know why it is so natural for them. And uh, that's when I, like some others in my generation, started reading in the, un uh, in the underground, in fact, from the books which were brought by American or, or some foreign tourists, Jewish about ourselves, and suddenly you discover the history, that you can, it can be your history, and the people, and uh, Israel, and then you understand that that's what you want, that's yours. So from the moment I made the first step, and the first step was to go to your place of work and to inform that you decide to go to Israel, and you ask for character reference. It's ridiculous, but that was the process in order to make it more difficult, you have to declare in practically in every organization that you're connected about your intention, and then to get a paper that they know about it. So It of course, makes Israeli bureaucracy seem easy. No, it wasn't bureaucracy. The moment you do it, you're losing all your status, all ah. your career, everything. You're fired. You, you can be persecuted. You can be interrogated from where you know about Israel. Who gave you this book? Who gave you that book? There'll be friends who will ask to take their telephone numbers from your telephone book because they don't want also to be checked by KGB. So it's it's not bureaucracy. It's, uh, it is done deliberately in order society will be able to take enough steps against you and then, then you will be refusing. So you have to think, are you ready to start this process or not? But I can say the moment I start this process, Suddenly, it's such a big relief. You, for the first time, start speaking publicly what you really think. Remember, from the age of five, I know that everything is lies. What you're saying is lies. The truth is only for your family. Your identity, your beliefs, yeah. your religion. And now you're saying openly, I don't feel I belong to this society. 
So it was such a relief. I knew that from that moment that I will be, I'm going to be very active because I really, now I'm a free person and uh, uh, now I'm going to use this. Uh, before I could use my inner freedom only for chess or for physics, now I can use it really to change my life, the life of other Jews, and then simply the life around you. So the type of relief which I felt making this first step, you understand, after this, there were so many steps, there years in prison, there were threats of sentencing you to death, and so all this was much easier than to make the first step crossing this line between loyal citizen and free person. Did you ever think you were you would die? Well, uh, not at the moment when I did, did my first step. Thanks God that when you're making your first step, you don't know all the challenges because you're, you're also a citizen. You'll be told, you know, you, now you'll make a step which will, can bring you three years to be sentenced to death. You probably will not even start about it. It goes with the time. But when I was arrested already, after being activist and spokesman of Zionist movement, of human rights movement, and accused in high treason, and was explained again and again for the year and a half of interrogation that I'll be sentenced to death if I will not cooperate. So I had to make myself used to this idea that maybe I'll die because whether I'll survive physically or not doesn't depend on me, it depends on them. And uh, if I will not cooperate with them, of course, but I really have to rely on things which depend on me. And uh, so whether I'll remain a free person in prison, it depends on me. So I had to like switch your mind and understand that your aim is not physical survival. This Now your aim is to remain free person until the last day of your life, whether it will be 50 years, 20 years, or three months. Better don't, not to think about it because it really doesn't depend on you. So yeah, well, I, I had to to accept this idea that physical survival is not the most important thing. In my previous life, when I had no identity, when I had to be the best in physics or mathematics in order to survive, of course, physical survival was the highest value. That's why you're not fighting for anything, because you are fighting only for your survival. But when you're really becoming a free person and you know that the base of this freedom is your identity, then it's not a priority. I think the title of uh, your book, your most recent book, Never Alone, if you could ever summarize a life in two words, this is how. But I'm sure that you had to have felt alone many times throughout this struggle. Well, I have to say that I'm grateful to Gil, who didn't let me to have another title, because we already signed a contract on the title <laughs> 999. Nine years in prison, nine years the minister in the government, nine years the head of Jewish agency. But I was told by him and many others, you cannot have in a joke a title of the book. Yeah. And then when we were discussing about my experience, it all starts, in fact, the center of this book is the dialogue between me and Jewish people, between Israel and Jewish people from different directions. And of course, in the most powerful way, I felt this dialogue in prison because there KGB was trying to give you feeling that you are isolated, alone. I was in the center of this world struggle. I was spokesman of our movement. Abruptly, they arrest you and they say, 
Now these KGB interrogators, there were 17 KGB interrogators because it was like a case against all our movements. Hundreds of people were interrogated all over the country. And so they're saying, so now these are the last people that you see. And don't understand that everybody is arrested, that the end of Zionism, all these Jewish groups, look who they are, a bunch of students and housewives. How long they will be fighting for you? Uh, there are so many issues on the agenda. And in addition to this, now that you're accused to be a, a spy, they're afraid even to mention your name. And so, and it continues for weeks and months and, uh, and years. And you know nothing what's happening. But you know that it's lie. You simply, you imagine in your head what all these Jews, my comrades in arms in Moscow, what they continue to do, what my wife with Israel this moment does, what all these hundreds of my accomplices, Jewish tourists who were coming from America and other places, whom I met, and now they were all on the list. They were bringing information to us. They were taking and smuggling our letters and our pills to the world. What they're doing now, what all these journalists that you worked with do, and you understand that it's all lies, that uh, you have no doubt that Jewish people don't stop to fighting for a moment. At this moment, you met Orthodox and Reformed and people on the right and people on the left. They're all on the same list yeah, of, no one cares. Of, of, of accomplices. You were working with the groups which are students and housewives and the groups which are establishment who don't trust one another, who compete with one another. But they are all on the same list of the anti-Soviet movement. And you understand that it's really all these differences don't matter because after all, we all are in the same struggle. And what's interesting that many years after when I was released, that the picture which was in my head, that was exactly what was happening. And all what was saying KGB was lies and, uh, and KGB disappeared and Soviet Union disappeared because it was all lies and because Jews never left me alone and I never felt myself alone. Do you remember the first moment you met or you received something from a Jew living outside the former Soviet Union who was like smuggling or trying to help you, like the underground? Before I became an activist, when uh, after 1967, I was reading the books. Uh, I was afraid to, to openly meet these people, but there were homes where you could come and find the books. But then, of course, the moment I said that I don't really belong to this country, I want to live in Israel, I started openly meeting with the tourists with the Israelis, and I remember almost immediately after I applied, sometime after, there was a universiada, it's like Olympic Games between universities, in Moscow, and Israeli teams of basketball players came. And I was one of those young refusings who rushed, rushed to meet them, and KGB tried to put a wall between us and them. That was definitely my first meeting with the Israelis, very encouraging, and the fact that KGB tried not to let us this contact, it was making it even more dramatic. And then meeting with the foreigners and uh, trying to send through them our information about the situation of Jews and uh, our letters to Amer American Congress or to, to Israel Parliament, collecting hundreds of signatures from different cities of Jews from the refusings, and then putting it one letter and passing, it became like one of my main works in the next years. And again, it was not secret meetings. Usually it was uh, because KGB followed all of them. 
But at the same time, we had to develop relations that we could give them documents which they will smuggle. Or the journal, I had to meet a journalist and tell him that tomorrow we'll have a demonstration. 10 Jews for five minutes will be standing in the Red Square with the slogans that give us a visit to Israel. Why only 10 Jews? Because the more Jews know, the more chance that KGB will know. Why five minutes, even if nobody knows how long before he'll be grabbed and arrested? Maximum five minutes. And then people will be arrested and can get up to five years of exile. So what is the idea of the such demonstration? But there must be one journalist who will know about it, who will come, who will inform the world, we are arrested, it's broadcasted all over the world, and next day tens, hundreds of thousands of Jews start working on our behalf, uh, organizing their demonstrations, demanding from their governments to act, demanding from centers to pass special resolutions linking us with, uh, with Soviet interests. That's how our struggle developed. But for this, there must be my meeting with the journalist. And there is no way that you'll meet with the journalist without KGB knowing about it, because all these foreign journalists lived in three guarded houses, we call them ghettos of journalists. And you must have relations developed enough that you'll talk to the journalist, and he gets the message where and when will be the demonstration, and KGB doesn't understand it. So it, sometimes it, you coordinate this language that you'll speak through tourists, which will go back to New York, which will meet there with somebody in Jewish in there, or in New York Times. They will send a message to their correspondent here, and, and then you only can say. So it was quite an operation. But the result, you know that people who are involved in this operation, whether it is tourists that you met or journalists, or, they are very devoted to the cause. And for, for them, of course, the fact that I'm arrested, it's like one of their comrades in arms is arrested. So I had enough confidence that the struggle continues. And after all, that's what I had to explain to myself. Nothing changed. You moved two miles from the place where you were to, to the prison. But in terms of the global international struggle, nothing changed to the contrary. Now, what you are saying is maybe even more important for the how it influences the struggle. So that's that's the type of psychological exercise that you have to do. Do you ever think about the KGB officers that were either interrogated you, imprisoned you, about where they are today? Uh, well, uh, not uh, not to say that you keep in touch. No, 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 no. But at some moment, I did try. Many years after, I asked somebody to check, check for me if Solonchik of the one who who was hundreds of interrogations with me that I really would like to talk to him, and he was alive. It was too late. It was like 20 years after. Uh. I, well, I don't know why he passed away. So. Uh, but look, I was not looking for meetings with them. They were not looking. But what's good to think is that they lost big. Yeah. And, uh, well, in my first book, Fear No Evil, which was written just after I was released, and was written mainly for those who are still fighting with KGB, and I gave all my experience of the interrogations and so on. So if you look at every interrogation which I had, or every conversation that they had with these leading interrogators of KGB, they lost everything. They lost their world, their dream, their confidence, and, and but also their careers. They lost their country. I found mine. I think the fight for Soviet Jewry, historically, is probably the last moment where the entire American Jewish community 
was united in a movement and not just a moment. I think now when tragedies happen, you know, like uh, what happened in Miami, you, ha- you have unity, but it, it's for around a tragedy, not a movement. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it is that the fight for Soviet Jewry struck such a chord in American Jewry, and yet there are many other causes that need uh, support and unity now, but we can't seem to find it? First of all, I'd say that whenever there is needed the struggle to save somebody or your people, or big group of your people, small group of your Jews are rather united and they are ready to, to help. But thanks God, I can say from my experience uh, the head of Jewish agency, most of the Jews who are coming to Israel, they are not running away from pogroms. It's, it's their free choice. Once my neighbor in my building who made Aliyah from America once looked nostalgically how I'm playing with my girls and said, Natan, it was such a great time when you were in prison. Then we were all together. It was these wonderful demonstrations. It's such a place for dating. It's such a place for, for life. It's a, where are all this? They said, well, sorry, I'm not going to go back to prison, so <laughs> we'll have to find other ways. But I have to say, on the other hand, this interdependence, what was really so powerful there is interdependence. We are discovering the, our history and our family, and the American Jews are discovering their family. I remember coming, oh, your father is from Odessa. And my father, grandfather, is from Odessa. We are family, we want to help you. And so many Jews were telling, and until this day I hear it, how this involvement struggle for Soviet Jewry helped them to rebuild their identity and their feeling of family. And it was so easily to connect their struggle for the family with their belief in Tikkun Olam, in freedom, marching together with Martin Luther King and then straight coming uh, to Moscow. But on the other hand, if you look on today's world, the level of our interdependence became bigger. What I was dealing with as a head of Jewish it's mainly Israeli experience programs. Israelis were like Massah, like birthright, like all the others. It's not Israel that imposed on American Jews birthrights, send your children to us for 10 days. It's American Jews, Charles Bronson and Michael Steinhardt. They came and they were pushing that we discovered that we cannot guarantee that our children will be interested in their Jewishness if they're not coming to Israel. Only if they're coming to Israel, we succeed in making them connected. And so you find out that today, for the survival of American Jewish community, American Jewish community needs Israel. So, well, on the other hand, Israel, with all its economical and uh, social unbelievable success, discovers that uh, the world is not ready to accept our existence for granted. The fact, today, the legitimacy of the state is challenged more and more than before. And who is our most natural ally, of course, and the most important ally is our family. So I, I believe that's what we are discussing in the book. But then when you look this perspective of looking on Jewish-Israeli dialogue from the prison, and then you look from the chair, uh, from the chair of Israeli minister speaking to the diaspora, and then from the chair of head of Jewish agency speaking in the name of diaspora to Israeli ministers, you'll find out that interdependence became higher. We did not always understand it. In fact, as 
Many times in the past, what helps us to understand anti-Semitism. But here again, we have a very challenging situation because anti-Semitism automatically was uniting Jews. Uh, if it was Dreyfus case or Be Bailey's case or the case of blood libel in Damascus, everybody in the world, every Jew in the world, understood that it's about him, uh, her, and we have to fight. Today, the world is very polarized, and simultaneously we have anti-Semitism on the left and anti-Semitism on the right. Doesn't end well for the Jews. No, and for the people of the left, for people of the right, for Jews, it is very difficult to accept that anti-Semitism in their camp. It is so easy for the people on the left to fight anti-Semitism on the right. It's so easy for the people on the right to fight new anti-Semitism in the universities. Because it's their openness, but it will not be effective. Only if you're fighting anti-Semitism in your political camp, it can be effective. And that's the challenge for Jews, to understand that we have to stand as one against hatred towards Jews or hatred towards Jewish state in the same way. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point. You've seen like evil in your life. I think as, a, as someone who grew up in, in Baltimore, in Maryland, you know, evil was this character on a movie. Thankfully, it really never reared its ugly head into my life. So you've seen evil, the KGB. Uh, have you seen goodness and where? Okay, of course. In fact, when you are in evil empire, it's easier to see goodness because everybody who stands, even in the small way, against this evil, it's easy to notice, it's easy to feel. And uh, I'll give you another like intellectual example. At some moment, my interrogator, Solonchenko, whom I just now mentioned, started saying to me, well, we had a lot of time when he was lecturing about uh, Soviet morale and so on. And of course, I was lecturing him with my anti-Sovietism. But some moment, he started telling me how I grew with these great values over Russian literature and Russian culture and how I betrayed it. I told him, wait, wait for a moment. You want to say that Lev Tolstoy and Fyodor Dostoevsky and Chekhov, Anton Chekhov, are with you? They're with me. They, on every issue that we're discussing, then we read their books. They're fighting together with me against you. So don't try to take it to yourself. It's not your culture. And uh, that's really how I felt it. It's uh, great Russian literature until these days, uh, the most important literature for me. Well, of course, now I know my Jewish sources, and they know the power of Bible and the power of our Jewish culture. But this Russian culture helped a lot me to fight for my inner freedom. So, of course, there are very important good things which I'm not ready to sacrifice them, to make them drown in this one big evil empire. There was very powerful evil, and we were so happy in prison when President Reagan finally called Soviet Union the evil empire, because we were absolutely sure that the world is deceived, the world doesn't understand the depth of the evil and the weakness of the evil empire. And the fact that American president understood it, we knew it's a great, great guarantee of the future victory. Uh, but, How did you find out? Uh, well, uh, if you are not in punishing cell, you can read official Soviet Pravda. In a newspaper, and there was a big article condemning President Reagan for how he did. It's against all the tradition, all the history, all the norms of decent society. And uh, 
And we became so excited, informing one another, those who are in the punishing cell, they cannot get it. So you're sending by more of them information. And many years later, when I was released and when I was in White House and I told to President Reagan that that was the greatest day in Gulag when we heard about his speech, he called us and said, listen, listen to this guy. And, uh, and so he had so many headaches from the people around him for that speech. Uh, his speech writer then thanked me a lot. He said, you can't imagine how you saved my career here. <laughs> 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 so, but uh, coming back to this. So it was easy to feel that you are inside evil empire. But just because it was such a clear duck, it was also very clear white. And that, uh, that was the comfort of living in Soviet prison. There is black and white, there are enemies and friends, and you know exactly where you are and with whom you are. Wow. So you've met a lot of presidents, prime ministers, dignitaries. Who is a world leader or a dignitary that you met and that you actually had a human-to-human connection with, not like a president-to-activist? or That was just special and that sticks with you. If you are speaking only about presidents, I can say, no doubt, President Reagan. And he was really the one who became very personal involved in us. Well, first, my wife met with him. And he was very impressed. And for that day, he wrote in his diary that how influenced he is and how emotional he is. And after this, I, when I was released, I met him a number of times. And he was so instrumental in our struggle, and at the same time, so human and taking it very personally. And another president with him, whom I had a lot of interesting interactions, was President Bush, young President Bush. W. W, yeah, because he. Well, almost by chance, it uh, happened that when I uh, wrote a book, Defending Identity, together with Ron Derver, who later will become uh, ambassador. And he was one, uh, read it, one of the first readers, by chance. And we were just in the beginning of our book tour, and we received a telephone from White House that President Bush, and it was just in two elections, he was just now elected for the sec- second time, so... He had time for lunch. <laughs> he had three few days, and he wants to meet me. And then I met, and we really I discovered a person who who feels like me about the freedom. He 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 started. He said, "Look, you know, I always knew that freedom is not American invention. That's something that God gave us, but I didn't know how to explain it simply. And you really, in your book, you're explaining it. <laughs> so, and we started talking about freedom and what it means and so on." And look, and uh, he then, during his presidency, he personally met with more than 100 democratic dissidents, almost half of them in my presence. And I encouraged him. And I took, what and role I, were you in during then? You were in... Well, I, for example, I and Watson, when I met first him, I was a minister in Israeli government. Then I resigned because of uh, disengagement. Good idea. <laughs> and, and we exchanged with him letters about it because he said, look, I agree with you, but I have to, to trust to Ariel Sharon. But then I and Václav Havel organized a conference of democratic dissidents in Prague. So uh, we, we had very interesting relations. Not everything that he agreed, I agreed. And uh, in fact, there is one very important thing in my book which he never accepted that Elections, it's not democracy. Democratic elections in democratic society, that's what democracy. And 
society has to be developed in order to have free elections. But okay, that's something that we never agreed. But I have to say, and of course, there were other leaders, everybody has. I would say, though, there was one person whom I met for a very short time, for one hour, but with whom I really had this intimate clique. And it was King Bodoan from Belgium. Soviet Jewish organizations were inviting me, and I was in France, so I decided to come to Belgium for real for a couple of days. And there was a very active group who wasn't. And they said, it's such a pity that our prime minister, it was only a few months that I am in prison, and so I met uh, Reagan, I met Thatcher, I met Mitterrand, everybody who were very actively involved yeah. in our struggle, and the struggle continues. But here I'm coming to Belgium, and they say, Prime Minister is not here, but we want to ask, maybe King is interested too. And then they come to the big hall, very huge hall, there is like lonely, tall, thin man, old man, and I didn't know how to call him, nobody explains. So I uh, said, uh, hello, Mr. King, I said to him, and he said, hello, Mr. Sharansky, because I didn't know, well, Mr. King, he's King. And then, and he starts asking me about the prison. And very quickly understood uh, that, or saw that he is a very devoted Catholic. And then I told him about my meetings with Christian dissidents and how we were fighting I for my psalm book, they for their Bible, and how they were persecuted, and about Pentecostals whom I was helping. And then I told him about my psalm book, which is always with me, how I was fighting for it. And I showed to him. He says, that is this, that very book? I said, yes. He opens. And he starts reading it. He read Red Hebrew because he got some Catholic education. Yeah. He, he knew Hebrew. And he started reading. And then I explained to him how I couldn't read, I couldn't understand. But then the first phrase, which I understood, and if you go through the valley of death, you fear no evil, because you are with me. God. And he finds this line, and he starts crying. And, and after this, some... Kings who were coming visiting here from Monaco, they were asking to meet me because, but uh, they they were successful because I'm all in political fight with Soviet Union. They are very far from this. They simply want to, to hear the story of their uncle. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. But no, but that was the most human touch which I ever had with uh, the leader. The last question, what is a, a line that keeps you going? Well, I tell you the line which I said to myself in prison, the very beginning, the first hours, that they cannot humiliate me, only I myself can humiliate myself. This feeling of that everything begins from you, from inside. You're, you're, you're the boss of your life and not, not somebody else. But another thing that we were speaking about a lot, of that's, I would say, the main, the first conclusion of my experience and the main with which I go through all that I'm doing is that if you want to, make, to improve the world, if you want to make it more free for everybody, it needs a lot of strength, a lot of energy. There is only one source of the strength, uh, and that's your identity. So identity and freedom have to go together. I, I believe that every person has two basic desires, desire to be free and desire to belong, to belong to something bigger than your own life. And these two desires have to be connected. Natan Sharansky, thank you so much. This is such a pleasure. 
Truthfully, I can't remember much of the interview without listening to the tape. You know, when you're so deep in a conversation that the world around you is so irrelevant, you forget about your phone, the time, and what's next. Well, this was like that. And frankly, it bothers me a little. What do I remember? I remember being lost. For a second, I forgot about the microphones. I forgot I was in Jerusalem, in Israel, and instead, I was only thinking about the conversation. As we finished, we thanked Natan for his time. He told us he enjoyed speaking with us, and then we packed up our equipment and headed out. I wondered if I would ever see him again. Before we left the campus that houses Natan's office, I used the nearest restroom. I heard someone else walk into the bathroom and didn't see him. I wondered and laughed, maybe it's Natan. It probably was. There weren't many people around that morning, and we did drink a lot of water together during the interview. I thought, I guess this proves it. He's just a person, and a character of history, a treasure. Maybe he drank too much water that morning too. He is a person after all. Thanks for joining me on 36. This podcast is hosted by me, Justin Hayat. Our managing producer is Sarah Shemla. Our executive producer is Attila Samfalvi, and our editor is Robert Scarmuccia. This is a production of Soul Shop and sponsored by B'nai Zain. Please rate and review this podcast in your podcast app of choice and share it with your friends, your butcher, and your shadchan. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again soon.